Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it seems like you've been teaching us so much through this series in in 1 Samuel. You've been with us for nine weeks now, and there have been so many encouragements, challenges. We've appreciated the Lord Jesus in greater depth, and we've seen the kind of king that he is, the kind of king that we need. You've revealed to us something of the reality of our hearts, the importance of sitting under your word and not doing things our way of the fact that sometimes you answer our prayers and give us what we want so that we see they're not what we need. And we pray once again that you would speak to us this morning. As we engage with this text, as we see David finally crowned over all Israel, again, would you give us more than just a grasp of the passage, but would you speak to our hearts? Thank you that in you we have the words of eternal life. And so we long that you would speak to us. Amen. Okay, allow yourself to daydream. A blank sheet of paper. You can go wild. Um, What would your ideal rest look like? Where would you go? Who would you be with? Maybe who wouldn't you be with? What would you do? Maybe what wouldn't you do? What does rest look like for you? Maybe you've had those thoughts and discussions recently because it's that time of the year and you've got a holiday coming up and you are counting down the weeks until you get to down tools and go somewhere. Maybe you've picked your place and your people and your activities. And we know rest is good. We know we need it. We know the problems when we don't rest. And of course, rest is part of the blueprint. It is how we were made. It is the way that God made us and designed this world. Rest in the Bible is a, is a key theme. And yet, when we read of rest in the scriptures, it doesn't necessarily mean inactivity, as many of us would cry out for, long for, in our overly busy world, in our overly busy city, in our overly busy lives. Now, rest means something like life as it was meant to be lived. You see, when God rests at creation, right back in the beginning of Genesis, it's not as if he, he pops the kettle on, puts his feet up and, and has a breather and does nothing for a bit. No, it's much more that he will enjoy the stuff that he's made, taking time to, to engage with what he has been doing. And then he, we would follow him in that with the Sabbaths as patterns of rest as you continue. Exodus and Deuteronomy and elsewhere. When our first parents walk out on him, they are seen as restless wanderers. They are people without a home. Not at rest. Or the people of God finally in the land that he promises for them. And they are at rest. They are safe. They have what they need. There are enemies around, enemies within that are calm and quiet. The people are able to know God, to worship God. They are blessed by him. It is it's life as it was meant to be lived. And when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's, he's longing that we would come to know the one whom we were made for. That we would trust his grace and stop trying to earn it. 
that we would stop rushing around for fulfillment and the kind of things that were never meant to actually fulfill us. And then we're given this glorious glimpse at the end, rest, when God and man are finally reunited again, new heavens and a new earth. It's, it's life as it was meant to be lived, our vertical relationship with the Lord perfected, finally and forever restored, our intimate and caring as he wipes tears from eyes, as we see him face to face. But then horizontally as well, relationships with each other. There are no enemies, no trials, no sin and no shame. At home, in one sense, the whole of the scriptures is a story of rest, looking for rest. And as we zoom in on 2 Samuel 5 today, we'll see it is a signpost stretching us forward to that true rest with the Lord. It's a snapshot of the people in the land, finally living under the kind of king that God wanted them to live under. The kind of king with a heart that runs to him, that turns to him. Um, I feel that I need to, before we jump into chapter 5, um, just scroll back a little bit, um, because we've skipped a few things since last time, um, and I don't want you to feel as if we've ducked stuff, but I'm, I'll encourage you perhaps this week to read the things that we've missed. But essentially, what we've jumped over are years and years of back and forth between David and Saul. Saul, remember the king the people wanted? David, the king the people needed. Saul, the tall military warrior, a king like the nations, David, short, a man after the Lord's own heart. And pretty much he has been impeccably patient. There have been opportunities and circumstances that have aligned, but he has not been prepared to push away the plan of God and to get rid of Saul before his time. David's not been prepared to do things his own way. End of 1 Samuel, chapter 31. Saul and Jonathan both die in battle against the Philistines again. We'll see the Philistines again in today's passage. But that means that here, David can now take the position of king. Actually, he's already had another anointing of the southern part of the land, but we'll look at that in a moment. What we're going to do in 2 Samuel 5, though, is we're going to split the passage into two. Um, and essentially, in the first half of the chapter, you see internal peace in the land. And then the second half of the chapter, you see external peace. Um, so we're going to start off in um, verse 1 to 12, and we'll see God's shepherd king provides. Here we are, dotting I's and crossing T's. This is a shorthand chapter for God blessing his people. Here we see rest here we see God has kept his promises now you remember if you've been around that David was first anointed back in chapter 16 do you remember there was Samuel all Jesse's sons lined up David wasn't at the party he was in the fields with the sheep and eventually he's called in eventually the Lord says this is the one eventually he is anointed um, but then he's anointed again in 2 Samuel 2 if you go back a couple of pages um, over Judah, as we said, Jonathan and Saul were killed in battle. David is anointed over the south. Remember the, um, but at that point, one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, is made king in the north. And it's only after he then dies that the elders of Israel can come to David. They track him down in Hebron. And verse 1, they anoint him over all the tribes of Israel. 
at last, it's taken a number of years, if he was a teenage shepherd, as we thought he probably was, then that's been maybe 10 or 15 years or so. Because in verse 4 of today, you read he was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. Again, it's striking. He's 30. 30 was the age of Joseph in Genesis 41. Do you remember again this idea of patience? The Lord lifting up his person at the right time, but it's not been quick. So the elders come to David and they pitch to him the fact that he ought to be king. And it's quite persuasive. There are some interesting things which he lists. There are some things we've not really touched on, actually. Um, Let's try and unpack them in verses 1 to 3. Let me read them again. Um, We are your own flesh and blood, they say. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall become their ruler. Okay, so they go firstly and they say, intimately, you are one of us. We are your own flesh and blood, which is that he's a brother of theirs, but we've already seen this. We mentioned it a few weeks ago. It's also Genesis 2 covenant-type language going on there, which is striking. He's one of them. He's committed to them, but if the Genesis 2 covenant-type language is there, then it's as if the Davidic kings almost to be like husbands committed to their people. Almost as if God's people are to be their wives. So there's an intimacy, a solidarity that they go for initially. And then they say, well, you've already earned your stripes as military leader. Again, we saw this last time. Saul was meant to be the military-type king, but David ends up doing it. He is the one who has led them in the military battles, the military campaigns. They trust him. He's been kingly already. And then the Lord, um, if any doubt is left, they say to him, suck a punch. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and you shall become their ruler. Come on, David. God's told you it's going to happen. And again, we've spoken previously about this shepherd metaphor. We said last time, or the last time we spoke about shepherding, that from Genesis to Revelation, God is the shepherd. Foundationally, the shepherd of his people is the Lord. But then from David onwards, and actually explicitly from verse 2 onwards, in our passage today, this, this shepherd metaphor shapes the way we understand leadership in the scriptures. It's one of the overarching ideas. Because God is shepherd, he will put human shepherds over his people. And bad shepherds, remember Ezekiel and the Pharisees particularly, they are the shepherds who will look after themselves before their sheep. They are selfish They are self-centered. They serve themselves. Whereas good shepherds are those like God who pour themselves out for their sheep. They will provide and they will protect. They will guard and they will guide. They will lead them by streams of living water. They will be with them even through the darkest valleys. And the elders pitch to David works. And he is crowned. He makes a covenant with all his people before the Lord. And you see, initially he reigns in Hebron um, for seven and a half years. But then verse 6, we see he goes to Jerusalem and he seeks to conquer Jerusalem. Indeed, it is from Jerusalem that the Davidic kingship will um, be seated 
Indeed, it's from the new Jerusalem that the, the true Davidic king, the Lord Jesus, the final Davidic king, will rule forever. But why Jerusalem? What's wrong with Hebron? Why does he bother going to Jerusalem to get a new place to, um, to lead from? Why does he establish his throne there? Different ideas, but they're interesting. Um, some say maybe it's a poli- a, a, an astute political move. You see, Jerusalem was in the territory of Benjamin, and Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so if the Benjaminites are feeling a bit miffed about their family being rejected, maybe even they had animosity towards David as Saul had, well, by setting up base in Benjaminite territory, Benjamite? Benjaminite territory, that was in part a reuniting of the people. You see, this tribe, who perhaps feels a bit out there on the fringe of things, is brought in. There's a kind of reuniting, reforming alliances. Maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's just military. You know, the geography of the area, Jerusalem was on a great defensive position on a hill. It was already a known and established base, maybe already the strongest fortress in Canaan. Or maybe it was more theological. Because, do you see, verse 6 and 7, the ongoing presence of the Jebusites. Have a look. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off, mate. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. So who were the Jebusites? That's our question, isn't it? Um, Probably the key starter for 10 for Jebusites is Genesis 15, part of God's promise to Abraham. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to him, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and, last but not least, the Jebusites. So do you see, God promises them the land, and they are in the land, but there are still Canaanites there. They've not finished the task yet. They are at home, but not at home. They are at rest, but not at rest. That they're settled, but not completely settled. And actually, if you track it back, it's interesting that there have been a couple of attempts already to get rid of the pesky Jebusites. And for various reasons, they hadn't worked. You can read in Joshua 15, verse 63. And they were unable to, to remove them. The tribe of Judah gave it a go. It doesn't work. Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And that's Joshua 15. Then in Judges, I'm at the start of Judges chapter 1, they were unwilling to remove them. They compromised on it for some reason. We're not quite told why. The Benjaminites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjaminites. And so do you see, here is David. He's come to finish the job. To remove the last of the Canaanites. He is a better Joshua. He is a better judge. He is a king who sits under the word of the Lord, who obeys it fully. He he chops out the cancer regardless of the cost or the effort that it will take in the land. He sees the job through to conclusion. And so the Jebusites go. It's hard work. Again, the details of the story of their removal is is an interesting one. It's intriguing. The 
The Jebusites are cocky, verse 7. All right, David. All right, down there, mate, you're not getting in here. Even, even if we were blind and lame, you couldn't get in here, David. You've got no chance. We are safe. And yet their self-confidence is unfortunate. It's unwarranted because he does get in and they do get refeated and they are removed. We don't know exactly how it works in terms of the ins and outs of the military strategy. We do know there's a, a water shaft removed, verse eight, uh, involved, sorry, verse 8. And from what we know of the city and its architecture, we know that there was a narrow shaft that took water from the Gihon Spring to keep the city watered. And David says that's the weakness. And so either what they do is they kind of sneak in through the water shaft to get them, or else they maybe even block the water shaft off so they end up being weakened and defeated. We don't really know. The bottom line, though, he defeats and he captures and he fortifies the city and he grows more and more and more powerful. In verse 11, see, he's even um, building a palace with cedar logs from Tyre, from the king of Hiram, an early glimpse of the nations coming to serve the people, bringing their best. In years to come, these guys too will help Solomon build a temple in the same place. David has established Unless we think it is his military prowess and might, we are reminded twice of the theological underpinning. Verse 10, the Lord God Almighty was with him. Verse 12, then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. It's striking, isn't it, that point? Take a step back. The, the people's sinful desire for a human king over them do you remember at the beginning? It has been weaved into his plans and purposes. And finally, here is a king enthroned over his people. Here is the king they need. He has subdued his enemies. He is ruling and reigning. He's established. And is there peace and stability? Well, not for long. Because once again, the Philistines come. They hear he is settled. And they come up and they attack. And they do it twice, actually. Verse 17 to 25, God's shepherd king protects. Have a look down at the final half of the chapter. A few things to point out. Verse 18 and verse 22. Notice they both happen. Both these battles happen. Um, the, the battle, um, the value of refame. It becomes actually clear later in Samuel, if you look carefully, that this area seems to be called that, Rephaim, because it's named after or is the home of a huge family, or more than that, a family of huge people, kind of legendary people, giant-like people. Just a glimpse again, maybe more Goliath-like giants in the land. Once again, the Lord is delivering his people. Once again, God is conquering it's interesting, too, at both battles, did you notice, David inquires of the Lord before heading into battle, verse 19 and verse 23. And we kind of zoom over them, but we shouldn't do that because, because Saul hasn't done that. But here we have a king who listens to the Lord. Here we have a king whose first thought is to ask God and to listen to him. Here is a king we read of in Deuteronomy who, who knows the Lord. He's not doing his own thing. He's doing God's thing. 
And I wonder as well, just by the shape of these two battles, whether we just get something of the nature of the the hard-heartedness of sin. The Philistines just do the same thing. They go into battle and they lose. And then they do the same thing again. It's almost like a copy and paste job. Almost kind of control C, control V, there we go. It's almost comedy. The wording is deliberately very similar, but you wonder, isn't that something maybe of the nature of the reality of hard-heartedness and sin? The fact that we just don't learn? You see in the Philistines, they're making the same mistake again and again. Round and round we go, slow to learn, slow to change, unable to do anything about it almost. Isn't that the, the nature of doing life without God in one sense? Dead and dying, self-centered, anti-God living, repetitive, downward spiral, death at the end. Which I take it is why verse 21 then, the Philistines abandon their idols there. And David and his men carry them off. Do you see the, the idols abandoned them? And so they abandoned their idols. Their gods were not able And so they left them behind. Friends, finally we will see that the other little gods that we run after won't actually work. We put our trust in them, but they won't deliver. We Be careful what you worship. Be careful what you put your trust in. There you see verse 21 in very stark sense. What happens to the gods that we worship? They're not really gods. I've used it here before, but it's too good to miss. I'm going to use it again. It's a quote from um, an American author called David Foster Wallace. Um, For some of you, it will sound familiar. Just kind of look surprised. Um, For those of you for whom it's not familiar, have a listen. He says this. Uh, He's not not a believer, as far as we know, as far as we knew. Um, He says, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, he says, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money or things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Striking, isn't it? Be careful what you worship. Be careful with the idols that we run after, the gods whom we bow down to. The Philistines abandoned their idols because they realized their idols had abandoned them. Actually, there are two different contrasts there as well. As they abandon their idols, we should be remembering, do you remember the Ark of God being captured back in 1 Samuel 4? Do you remember when it was captured? He was put uh, put before Dagon, And Dagon, every morning, would wake up prostrate on the floor. Well, here now, their idols are captured. 
Here now we see who God is, clearly. There's a contrast as well, though, between verse 21 and verse 24, this second round of fighting, the second battle with the Philistines. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. That is, here is the living God with his people. Here is the Lord's army that they can hear him. Dead idols that don't provide versus the true Lord who does provide. The God who is with his people, the God who does not abandon his people. He he leads them into battle. (laughs) They didn't even need a military king, did they? They have a God who goes with them into battle. And finally, as David defeats the Philistines, for now at least, the threat from the West is gone. Does that mean peace? Does that mean rest? Does that mean, does that mean life as it was meant to be lived? Does it mean that all is well with the world? Well, no, because this picture is painted for us, and it's a hopeful chapter. It's a chapter that looks ahead. There's lots to be excited about. But there are a couple of annoying verses that we skipped over in the middle. You notice them? Verse 13 onwards. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shammah, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Do you see there's a fly in the ointment? Because the perfect shepherd king is still to come. In one sense, we look at verse 13 to 17, and it's kind of a picture of a big family, picture of blessing in one sense. Is this a thumbs up moment? But then you match it up again with the pattern for the king in Deuteronomy, and it doesn't look good. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. Moses, looking ahead, he says, When you ask for a king, these are the things that the Lord wants for that king. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. What do we read in verse 13? David took more concubines and wives it's a bit confusing he's actually already got some wives and we read of Michal last week it's possible that Saul has ended that marriage then you read as well in between the intervening chapters that there's Abigail Um, she had been the wife of an enemy of David named Nabal then there's Ahinoam of Jezreel so David's got two or possibly three wives already but then He takes more when he's in the land, when he's in his palace. The point seems to be, this this is his Achilles. This is his weakness. Women are David's weakness. Even here we see that trajectory beginning. It's most obviously seen, of course, in his adultery with Bathsheba. That would cause untold damage in the years to come, to to people, to families, to nations. But here we see the, the little seed of it 
as we often do with sin, maybe David could justify it. You know, these wives, these concubines, they were politically expedient, perhaps. Look, he's just forming alliances with key nations or families from around the nation. But, but he knew Deuteronomy 17, didn't he? He knew it was wrong. Here is the trajectory that will lead him astray. For his son Solomon mentioned there, even more so. We're in the land. He's getting settled. But there is a fly in the ointment. Just as we finish, one comment and one contrast on these verses. My comment is, if you are married, then please watch your marriages. Guard them, invest in them, protect them, prioritize them. We have sinful and deceitful hearts. Hearts that wander and stray and seek to justify our sin. And say, take great care. And if you're not married, then watch your heart and your purity. For all of us, where we know God says something in the Bible and perhaps we don't like it, Take care that we don't seek to justify our behaviour as we sin. Just this last week, um, two pieces of news, if you like, that have pushed me into applying this to us. Um, Firstly, one of my favourite Bible teachers, a hero, I would say, has been removed and disqualified from ministry forever for adultery. Not the first time, apparently. And it is gutting and it ruins lives and it decimates churches. The second thing is, um, as Zoe and I were chatting this week, we realised that adultery is more common than we think. Just stories of people within East Oxford. Not at MRC, I should say. But just stories of people whom we know. So look after your marriages. Watch your marriages. Don't let hearts be led astray. That's the comment. The contrast, and we must end here, mustn't we? The contrast is with the Lord Jesus. Because he is the shepherd king who gloriously loves his bride. He is the one who pours himself out for her to make her beautiful. It's costly and it is painful, but it is good. He loves and he serves. As Paul puts it, he, Jesus loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You see, the Bible is a book, the Bible is a book that ends with the people of God provided for and protected, enjoying rest, a perfect and a forever rest, but it ends with a marriage. It ends with a wedding banquet full of feasting and rejoicing where we, the church, the bride, where we will enjoy our bridegroom forever, the Lord Jesus. The one who has poured himself out in love for us. The one who is committed to us. The one who is good. Let's pray to him now. Father in heaven, we do finish our time this morning looking ahead, hopefully, to that true and perfect rest where where we, the church, 
will be finally and forever and perfectly married to the Lord Jesus. Our groom who who loves his bride, who pours himself out for us, who is good and kind. Lord, we pray for a folk in this room, we pray for people at MRC, that we might be a church who, who looks after marriages. We might be a church who, who loves purity, who daily puts to death the sinful nature and puts on Christ, who, is, who are faithful and loving and committed because that is what you are like. Thank you, Jesus, that you are so much better than King David. Thank you that you are our shepherd who, who loves his sheep perfectly. We pray these things in your name. Amen.